Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the National Secular Society podcast and part 3 in our series of interviews exploring religious freedom. I'm Alistair Lichton, Head of Education at the NSS and today I spoke with Mariam Namazi. Mariam is the founder of the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain and of the One Law for All campaign. The National Secular Society named her our 2005 Secularist of the Year for her work in defence of women's rights and the rights to freedom of expression. As you'll hear, despite her activism defending the rights of religious minorities and for freedom of conscience, Mariam is sceptical of the term religious freedom, largely because of how it has been used by the religious right and those cloaking demands for religious privilege. I hope you'll agree that it makes for an interesting interview, and I'll be back at the end with a few comments. Enjoy. Mariam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, You're involved in such a wide range of activism that I'm not sure how best to introduce you. So perhaps you could start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and how you became a secularist activist. Well, I'm originally from Iran. And so, of course, one of the main issues that I've uh, been dealing with uh, is uh, the fact that it's a theocracy there. And so a lot of my activism comes around the issue of theocracy, the role of the religious right, which is a far-right movement, uh, and um, uh, also involved in the state and the laws and educational system. And of course, that's very much closely linked with women's rights, refugee rights. I, I do think they're all interlinked with each other, as is all human rights issues. And of course, for me, I think secularism is so key in uh, enabling people to have basic rights and dignity. I think it's impossible in a theocratic uh, state or in a situation where religion has access or influence. Um, And so I think that's what led me to becoming more involved with secular issues. Hmm. So you say that your background has informed your, uh, uh, your personal view of religious freedom and your professional view as well. Yes, definitely. I think, uh, obviously, I would hope uh, that I would have reached this conclusion, even if I hadn't lived in a theocracy, because I think, you know, secular societies are um, the best societies for both believers and non-believers. Of course, I know it's not the end all and be all. Of course, um, uh, there's a lot of things um, that people need in the 21st century to live dignified lives. But I do think that a secular framework is a minimum, at the very least, precondition, uh, particularly for human rights, women's rights, the rights of LGBT and sexual religious minorities and so on and so forth. So um, I do think, yeah, personally, I've come to realize it, having lived in a theocracy, Before that, I guess religion was sort of in the background for me. I was supposedly born a Muslim because that's the situation for for most people. They're born into a family and then they're immediately labeled as that the religion of their family. And so, um, you know, it was in the background for me because it wasn't very much part of my life, even when I lived in Iran. But uh, then when an Islamic state did come to power, I did realize very quickly how detrimental it is. I think religious rule is the end of all forms of rights and uh, freedom of expression and democratic politics. And, um, you know, secularism is therefore, I think, just a common sense 
response and desire and demand of people, especially those who live in such situations. So if you can sum up, what does religious freedom mean to you personally? I mean, I'm not sure I like the term religious freedom because it gives uh, more due status to religion than it rightfully deserves. I think the issue is freedom of conscience, that we all have the right to any belief, including uh, religious beliefs, but but that also includes the right to be free from religion, the right to uh, be atheist, to be critical of religion, and, and so I think, unfortunately, in this day and age, because of obviously the privilege of religion, the power it has as well, as the fear and intimidation that it can impose on large segments of society, that religious freedom seems to be the end all of everything, that you know it has to be respected no matter how many rights are violated and no matter what the results are uh, for people. So I think, yes, uh, you know, we need to stress the fact that people have the right to belief uh, and including religion, uh, even if we don't agree with their beliefs. But um, I think there's a difference between having the right to believe something uh, versus then having the right to manifest it and uh, allow for religion to have a say in uh, important aspects of people's rights and lives. Yes, a big part of this project is exploring how the term religious freedom is misused. So, um, for example, to be to imply that it is a sort of absolute right that overrides all other rights, and also there's uh, I don't know if you agree a, a sense among uh, some people that religious freedom is something for religious people uh, rather than actually being this wider. Uh, freedom of and from religion or freedom of conscience, however you you might like to change the label, that applies to everyone. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, it is misused and I think uh, it is misused uh, deliberately because we are in a situation now where we've got religious right movements and states in many countries. Uh, Of course, the most prominent are the Islamic states. But we also have the rise of the religious right or the religious fundamentalists, whatever you'd like to call them, in many different uh, capacities, including, for example, the Hindu right, the Jewish right, the Christian right, um, and uh, even the the Buddhist right in a place like Sri Lanka and Myanmar. And so I think it's deliberately so that uh, it's considered or portrayed as being absolute because it does help to... Uh, keep religion and the religious right, which uses religion for political purposes and for political power, uh, it keeps it um, safe, in a sense, from the criticism that it rightfully deserves. And that's why I think deliberately there is this effort to make it seem as if it's such an important absolute freedom that it's it's beyond criticism. And uh, in a sense, I think it's very much when you look at Islamic states where blasphemy or apostasy is the law, you know, that sort of criticism can lead to the death penalty or long-term imprisonment. Uh, whereas in, in more secular societies, we find this argument being used more and more so in order to impose a sort of secular blasphemy and apostasy laws, uh, you know, with accusations of Islamophobia, for example, but also the fact that it seems you know, criticism of religion is, and especially criticism of Islam in particular, is a no-go area. 
Um, and I think, you know, maybe part of it is we shouldn't be using the term religious freedom because the reality is that a freedom of belief is much more uh, expansive and much more white, uh, you know, uh, sorry, much more all encompassing than religion uh, only. It, it includes all forms of beliefs, uh, which, as you mentioned, is, you know, uh, atheism as well, being free from religion. And that's so key as well in this whole concept of freedom of conscience. I think one of the things that is very clear, at least for those of us who are involved in secular activities uh, and, and also those of us who've lived under theocracies or, or seen uh, what, what theocratic rule means for uh, people's lives and uh, the right to believe, we can see very clearly that it affects not just non-believers or atheists like myself or ex-Muslims, but also very much so believers, because not every believer agrees with the religious fundamentalists or wants to live religion in the way that is imposed by those fundamentalists. Because after all, if, it, if we agree that it's a private matter, if it's a private belief, then it needs to be uh, adhered to and believed in any way uh, one chooses. Uh, as a private matter, as an individual matter. You've often worked with secularists from faith backgrounds and there is, uh, I think, a perception that freedom from religion or secularism is only for non-religious people. Uh, how do you think that can be overcome? Well, I think, again, that's part of the propaganda of the religious right. Look, when you live in a world in which they have power and influence, and uh, also are very um, well versed in threatening and in silencing and censoring people, uh, you know, not just individuals, but even states and, and uh, public policy. They have such a, a lot of influence and access, even in more secular societies like here in Britain. Uh, it's, it's obvious that there'll be this sort of negative uh, propaganda against secularism and against atheism, for example. But I do think that uh, actually people who come from faith backgrounds, uh, who uh, live in uh, so-called minority communities and um, who've, who've, who've possibly fled from theocratic uh, states and movements, I think actually they know better than anybody else how important secular is, secularism is for their lives. And actually that's why a vast majority of people who flee uh, their countries, uh, many of those countries they're fleeing, um, are countries where religion is in the state or has uh, great amounts of strength, but also they're fleeing towards secular societies. There's a reason for that. People are voting with their very feet. So I do think that there is a level of propaganda that I Unfortunately, um, some secularists and atheists have bought into as well, you know, um, always on the defensive, um, you know, you know, you hear about how atheism is a negative word. word. Well, it's not a negative word. It's, it's very positive, in my opinion, uh, you know, being able to uh, say you're an atheist, especially in the conditions that we live in today. It's a celebration of free thought and it, it you know, we shouldn't hide from using it. And secularism, again, of course, secularism is not just for atheists. Uh, but again, it's not a dirty word. And I think, you know, we do need to unconditionally and unequivocally, uh, shamelessly, really, defend secularism and not a wishy-washy version of secularism, which is all religions are equal and equally valid. Well, you know, um, religions um, are just 
really bad news for for society. And I'm not talking about people's personal beliefs. Of course, they have a right to it. But when you're talking about it in the state or the law or public policy, it's no longer a question of personal belief. It's about power. It's about control. It's about managing and silencing dissent, women, sexual minorities, and so on and so forth. So it's important to have that framework. And it's important for secularists to defend that framework for believers and non-believers. Religious authoritarianism uh, of various different types often cloak their demands in the language of religious freedom. How can we challenge that without simply just abandoning this label, this term religious freedom to them? Well, yes, as you say, you know, uh, religious fundamentalists, uh, theocrats, they are using uh, rights language and not just uh, with this term religious freedom, but they're also using it, for example, uh, with uh, tools that are really meant to manage and, and oppress uh, women and those who dissent. For example, the right or choice to veil or the right and choice to segregation or Sharia courts. You know, these are tools used to manage and control people, but they do use rights language as a way of justifying it and legitimizing it. And this is nothing new. I mean, we've seen it throughout history where those who are trying to oppress will use language in order to justify uh, what they're trying to do. If uh, you recall during racial apartheid in South Africa, for example, you know, there was this discussion that uh, separating uh, blacks and whites is um, not inequality quality, that people are separate but equal, uh, you know, and uh, we hear these very same arguments when trying to justify uh, sexual segregation, for example, whether it's in universities here in the UK or in other countries. So I think, you know, the fact that they use this language is um, because they, they they do need to justify what they do. Otherwise, it's, it's so abhorrent, I think, if uh, there wasn't this sort of... Um, you know, lovely sort of non-threatening language around the issue. It would be too naked for people to be able to tolerate. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm not sure I I personally like the term religious freedom because I do think the accent is on religion and freedom, and it should be more. I think as secularists, we should be using the term freedom of conscience uh, more, because that is an all-encompassing term. And also, I think it's important because, you know, we live in a time when um, there's cultural relativism and where we find that beliefs are given uh, more importance, culture, beliefs, religion, is given more importance than people and their rights. And so we see when there's discussion of freedom or even of equality, it's usually framed within a sort of uh, religious framework. So, uh, you know, there's equality uh, for faith schools, for example. If there's X number of Church of England schools, then there should be X number of Islamic schools. Uh, or if there's a Beth Dins, then there should be Sharia courts. And what we see is, you know, this concept of equality and rights, which were usually raised vis-a-vis individuals, is very often being raised uh, with regards to religion. And I think that's a huge uh, mistake. It's part of that movement of identity politics and uh, sort of multiculturalism as a public policy that's regressive and that has uh, taken away uh, rights and citizenship uh, 
um, from individuals and, you know, given it really to groups and to uh, religions and cultures. And that's why I think maybe freedom of conscience or expression is, is something that we should be using human rights language, really, that is all encompassing and doesn't give any sort of privilege or priority to religion. You have to see that uh, with religious freedom or or, or freedom of, of belief, that the quote unquote freedom of a group to impose or to do what they want to do, conflicting with the freedom of an individual and that individual's right to be free from the religion or the imposition of it. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, look, there is no group. And I think that's part of the the problem. We've uh, moved away from the concept of individual rights and citizenship, universal rights, and uh, moved into something where, you know, it's multi-faithism, multiculturalism as a public policy, and sort of groups and communities that have rights uh, without any regard of what happens to the individual. Uh, the, the idea of group rights uh, gives the impression that there's homogeneity, uh, that there is agreement within the so-called group or community about issues. And, of course, that's not the case. Every group... Uh, no matter how homogenous it is portrayed, there is huge amounts of dissent and disagreement, political movements, social movements uh, uh, within um, that um, really is erased and ignored and disregarded when we look at um, communities as groups and give rights to the group. And basically, when we do that, we are really uh, giving rights to those in power to decide what is appropriate and not appropriate for the group in question. And so um, in a context where the religious right has power and influence, uh, what we see is the so-called Muslim community is then um, you know, equated with the most regressive amongst them. It's usually those in power, those who have, you know, some sort of um, links with the Islamist movement. We see that very clearly now in the Islamic societies, in the Sharia courts, in the Islamic organizations. There are many, many links with Islamic states and movements, and yet they are often portrayed as representatives of the Muslim community, whereas, of course, the so-called Muslim community has as many socialists and feminists and secularists and free thinkers as any other uh, group of people. And by, you know, uh, looking at the so-called freedom of a group, we're really denying uh, individual rights, we're censoring and suppressing dissent and not um, allowing for um, uh, real solidarity to take place. Because if you only see a homogenous community and you don't see the dissent, then, you know, you have uh, so-called progressives uh, showing their solidarity with the so-called Muslim community by siding with the Islamists, because that's what happens when you see only a homogenous group and not the, the, the protests and dissents taking place within. Religious authoritarianism and this effort to redefine religious freedom is a very international movement. I mean, if you, the yeah the Hindu, Hindu Vita, Christian right, Islamist right in this country, very international links. Do you think that the people who are defending 
what we might see as genuine religious freedom or freedom of conscience, do, uh, do they need more of an international focus as well? Or the issues that we're dealing with country specific? I think that, uh, of course, it's, uh, you know, an international movement. I think uh, uh, in the same way that the religious right, the fundamentalists, they see uh, their links with each other. They know that if one is strengthened, it strengthens the other uh, because they belong uh, to the same movement. And and likewise, uh, any gain made for secularists in any country is a gain for all of us. And I think... Um, there is a lot of work being done internationally. There's a lot of linkages. I mean, if you talk about any situation here in Britain where you're working and campaigning for secularism, whether it be an end to gender segregation at universities, whether it be uh, an end to Sharia courts or the Bethlehem or religious courts, or uh, whether it be, you know, um, girls at Islamic schools eating after boys or being told to sit uh, on opposite sides of the classroom, being taught that they're less than boys, um, having to wear the veil, which in my opinion is a form of child abuse. You know, if you look at any of those situations, you will find those same battles taking place in Iran, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. In Pakistan, you know, there are huge links. Uh, and of course, uh, similarly in countries where there are uh, Hindutva in India, you know, very similar issues relating uh, women's rights, women's equality, women's subservient status under uh, religious rules uh, with regards to Christian right in Poland, for example. So I think there are huge amounts of links. And the reality is that we are, we secularists are working internationally. Um, unfortunately, because there's such, um, you know, such respect for and tolerance for um, cultural relativism and this idea of identity politics and multiculturalism as a social policy, what we see is that, uh, you know, solidarity uh, is lacking in many uh, segments of society. And that's something that uh, we need to work on a lot more. We need to be very clear that secularism is a universal demand. I think many secularists apologize for secularism. They're, they make they they somehow feel like um, they need to explain how good it is for everyone else uh, without really having the confidence to defend it in the way that it should be defended, unequivocally, shamelessly, and you know we can do that even better if we actually see how much people are risking uh, for secular movements across the world. I mean, you know, if you look at the uh, movements, protest movements in Iran against compulsory veiling, against segregation in sports stadiums, you know, they might not say that they are secular movements, but they are fundamentally secular movements, modern movements, movements that are framed within a universal rights perspective rather than uh, within a Sharia law perspective. And so, um, you know, the more we see that, the more we recognize that, the more we work with uh, others fighting for secularism, I think uh, the more... Um, Secularists here will realize how uh, universal secularism is. It really is a human right. It really is um, a, a precondition and a prerequisite for basic freedoms and uh, uh, equality in any society. 
So then what can ordinary people do to uh, protect genuine freedom of and from religion? Well, I think, I mean, um, there's a lot one can do. uh, But I think, you know, if we start with basics, you know, it is this idea of uh, insisting on universal rights and values. You know, people bleed the same way, no matter what their background, and they want to live with rights and freedoms, no matter what the the background. Um, And, you know, sort of uh, insisting on this universalism and insisting on people being citizens, irrespective of what so-called community they belong to. Um, and, and I think with, if we look at it from that perspective, then we can see why it's important for women, uh, even if they come from Muslim backgrounds, to have access to their full rights and not just be relegated to Sharia courts, for example. Uh, you know, and to see it as something that is a duty um, in any society to give citizens, irrespective of their backgrounds, um, and any pressures that they might uh, be um, uh, facing to have the, the 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 rights and freedoms that are available to all citizens. Uh, you know, and the other aspect, of course, is an insistence on freedom of expression. Freedom of expression is really one of the only tools that ordinary people have in order to oppose uh, those in power who are trying to suppress uh, and to challenge authoritarianism and inequality. Um, and if freedom of expression is constantly limited and restricted with, you know, yes, I believe in freedom of expression, but not if you offend, not if you um, are, um, you know, um, insulting uh, X, Y, and Z, not if you are going too far, not if you are provocative. There's always these ifs and buts. Well, it gives um, it, I think it encourages the religious right, which is why they really can do anything they want. They can ban people from trying to speak. They can uh, threaten um, uh, people for speaking their mind. And what what's happened is that those who bully the loudest, those who uh, can frighten the most, they're the ones who are uh, able to um, have full rights in a way, while the rest of us don't. And I think this insistence on uh, really, um, these sort of universal principles uh, and also an insistence on free expression, as long as there's no incitement to violence, you know, I think um, it, it's hugely important if we're going to be able to win this, this very important battle that faces not just our society, but many societies across the globe. That brings us on to um, your speaking on the 14th of February at the Why We Defended Rushdie event at Conway Hall. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? The event on Why We Defended Rushdie is uh, uh, to mark uh, the 40th anniversary of the death fatwa against Salman Rushdie. And again, Salman Rushdie wrote a book. Um, You know, there's a lot of evidence that there were Islamists from Britain that actually went and asked Khomeini, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran to issue the fatwa. And so, you know, there's, again, when we talk about things having international links, here's one very clear one, uh, where um, this fatwa then had huge um, repercussions on the right to criticize and mock religion, and not just in Britain, but of course, across the globe. You know, 40 years ago, we were more free to say what we wanted to than we are today. And, you know, you've even got um, Life of Brian, um, 
um, actors, uh, Monty Python, saying that they most probably wouldn't have been able to make a life of Brian today, uh, given the climate that we're in. And so, you know, it was hugely important and brave for uh, women uh, of uh, against, you know, women against fundamentalism, South All Black Sisters, women like Pragna Patel and Gita Sakyal, who went and stood in support of Salman Rushdie um, and faced, you know, uh, thousands upon thousands of Islamists who were calling for his death. But the world also comprises of people who would like to read Salman Rushdie's book and uh, who would like to write books without fearing for their lives, you know, and I think at the time and even today, what we see is this constant victim blaming, you know, oh, Salman Rushdie's costing the state too much money when he was being protected uh, in the early years or, you know, Charlie Hebdo, well, if they hadn't done those cartoons, they could be alive today, you know, blaming those who've merely spoken their mind and, um, you know, we should really be targeting the religious right. They are destroying um, rights um, in, of course, many, many countries across the world. And we have a responsibility to defend those rights, to insist on them, and to defend those who are under attack. And of course, Salman Rushdie is a great case in point. His uh, story really um, um, was um, linked with the rise of the Islamist right in the world, and we see a very different world today for women, for gay people, for for uh, free thinkers, um, you know, across the world. And so, standing up for the right to express oneself is really a key fight in the fight for a secular uh, world. Mm. That leads us on quite nicely because we always like to ask our guests for some recommendations. Um, are there any books or films you think that do a particularly good job of exploring? freedom of conscience that you'd like to share? Well, I guess I'll uh, give a plug for uh, the Council of Ex-Muslims and a film that was made uh, two years ago by Dia Khan. She's a Muslim woman herself, uh, a really um, wonderful award-winning filmmaker who's done several impressive films. Uh, she did one on the Council of Ex-Muslims and uh, Islam's non-believers. And I think it's a hugely important film Unfortunately, uh, it never got the coverage that her other films got. And of course, it's because, again, this idea of leaving Islam and how dare we do it publicly and vocally. Um, this idea that, you know, how dare we criticize Islam publicly and vocally. Um, uh, that it's impermissible, it's taboo, it's not allowed, uh, can clearly be seen even in the reception of the film. So, for example, uh, The Guardian did a piece on Dia Khan's work. It mentioned that uh, she's done four films. It 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 um, listed three of her films, and, of course, the only one that wasn't listed was, was the one on Islam's non-believers. So I would really recommend to anyone who's grappling with these issues to, to watch it if they can. It can be accessed via our website, um, the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain website. If you do a search on it, uh, there's a link. And it's also, of course, on YouTube. Mariam, thanks so much for joining us and for your time. And we'll have the links to the uh, the Rashti event and the film which you mentioned in the show notes. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for giving me this chance as well. And good luck with the rest of your podcast. Thanks again to Mariam for joining us. And thanks for everyone for their feedback on the first two episodes. Those were my interviews with Stephen Evans and Rachel Lasser. 
You can catch up with all our podcasts at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcasts. This series has been leading up to our major conference in May, Secularism 2019, Reclaiming Religious Freedom. The details are linked in the show notes and tickets are available for just £50 or just half price for NSS members. The National Secular Society works for the separation of religion and state and equal respect for everyone's human rights so that no one is either advantaged or disadvantaged on account of their beliefs. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider joining the NSS today. Until next time, I'm Alistair Lichten, thanking you for tuning in. Goodbye.